A few weekends ago, my family went camping with some very close friends. We haven't known them for a real long time, just a few years, but when we met them, they felt like a lifeline. After Naomi and I left Brooklyn for the Boston area, we were so lonely. We'd go to school events, play dates, birthday parties, just hoping to meet people that we connected with, but we never did until we met Allie and Eric. Instantly, we knew they were our people, and that's how we described them over and over again, our people. They were community, belonging, family. But in March, when quarantine set in, we all suddenly had to make a new choice about now who our people were. And for many of us, that notion of belonging and community shrunk down to the most essential parts. For me, it was my wife, Naomi, and my two kids. And then soon we folded in my parents. And suddenly, Allie and Eric weren't our people anymore. It was heartbreaking for all of us in more ways than I think we've really come to terms with. But a few weeks ago, with school about to start and a brief scare that led to some fortuitously timed COVID tests, we decided that we would go camping together without masks. The kids would be together, we would be together, we would hug and hang out, and writing this, I'm close to tears. That's how emotional it was to reconnect, and honestly, still is. But none of this is the point, though it's also kind of the only point. The point is this. That first night we gathered together, I took out my guitar, and Eric took out his mandolin, and we made music. And because it was Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath, we sang Shabbat songs. Now, before I go any further, yes, this episode is about soccer, and yes, last time we did a soccer episode, we started with Shabbat songs, but I'm sharing this music because of something that Ali said. Tonight, I'm standing here singing song, singing melodies and singing Hebrew that I haven't sung definitely in six months, but some of the some of the words I haven't sung like since I was a kid, and they're and some and the words are still coming through. It's indescribable. I don't know what it is, you know, but it's some something awakens in me, and it, it's very 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 old. That thing that awakens inside of Ali from singing—that's what this episode is all about. We're singing songs to a bunch of grown men kicking a football around. How do you suppose someone who's never seen football before? It's just, it's just so weird. I can't describe the feeling. So, from faculty, this is First Time, Long Time, stories about sports for people who may not like sports. I'm Aaron Wolf, And this season, we're looking at what we can learn about our world and ourselves by watching the last sports played before quarantine. We started with basketball on the day everything shut down, and then we watched hockey and talked about the design of sports. But this time, we're looking at soccer fandom and trying to answer the question, what is it that awakens in us when we sing? And what can that tell us about one of the most pervasive losses we've felt this pandemic? The loss of community. Now, in every other episode, we've limited ourselves to watching the last game played before quarantine. But for this episode, we watched two games, and for a very good reason. On March 11th, Liverpool played Atletico Madrid in England in front of fans. 
While in France, Paris Saint-Germain, or PSG, played Borussia Dortmund behind closed doors. And that contrast is much more important in so many ways than you might actually think. We're going to start in France, in an empty stadium where PSG and Borussia Dortmund are about to kick off. Now, by now you may be familiar with the current broadcast style of games played behind closed doors. Teams cover seats with massive advertisements. There are Zoom screens filled with fan faces reacting to the game about a half a second too late. And of course, there are fake crowd sounds so that us viewers don't get too weirded out by the silence. But on March 11th, none of that was in place. No one knew that this was going to be a norm, not an aberration. So PSG and Dortmund walk out onto the field in silence. The empty seats around the stadium make it look like a preseason training game, not a massively important Champions League elimination game. Collective of talent that deserves the biggest of audiences. And whilst this is a game that will still grab attention worldwide, the quiet in which it will be played is a great, if I guess, understandable shame. For whom will silence be golden, though? You're listening to BT Sports broadcast of the game, and while the commentator Martin Kion is being very dramatic, there's something else going on that's very, very strange. It doesn't quite sound like an empty stadium, right? Well, that's because just outside of the stadium, in the parking lot, away from view, are about 1,000 PSG fans singing, screaming, and chanting. And they've gathered there, despite a raging pandemic that's marching its way across the continent because they believe that it is their solemn duty to support their team, to sing for them, to cheer for them, to live and die for them. So let's do some basics. In the football world, these types of fans are called ultras, and they are a phenomenon. In the States, we're used to having atmospheric sporting events dictated to us, right? An organist in a baseball game, music in a basketball arena, pre-recorded chants, all of that. Even in high school sports, the school provides a marching band to create atmosphere for the crowd. But basically everywhere else in the world, that's just not the way it goes. The atmosphere, the very sounds that make a game day feel like game day, it's all created by the fans themselves. And every place's soccer culture is a little bit different. South America, for example, is largely credited with the invention of rhythmic clapping. Africa has the vuvuzela. Iceland became famous for the Viking clap, but in Europe, it's all about singing. In Germany in particular, you have capos. That's Max Jack. He's an ethnomusicologist that studies ultras. They're usually kind of climbing up this fencing so that you can see them and they can see everybody. The capo's job is to get every single person in the stadium singing, chanting, jumping up and down, creating an atmosphere that intimidates the opponents, and energizes their players. And again, these are ticket-buying fans sitting in the cheap seats. In the old Yankee Stadium, when I used to go to games, there was a group called the Bleacher Creatures. They sat in the metal bleachers way out in right field, the worst seats in the stadium, maybe $15 a pop to go to a game. They were the loudest and rowdiest section of the crowd. But, and, and this is important, they didn't care about getting other fans to join in. In fact, half the time, they were chanting nasty things to the Yankee fans in the expensive seats. That's just not how it goes in the cheap seats of European stadiums. The goal ultimately isn't for the ultras, who may be like 200 people, to sing. The goal is to get like the best atmosphere possible. And so for that, you need to outsource your labor to as many people as possible. The 
sound starts to be like palpably physical, it's so loud that you can feel the vibrations moving through you, like moving through your lungs. People scream, people dance, people clap. It's honestly insane looking. Here's Thelonious Filth, or T. He's a fan of Tottenham Hotspur, the club I support. You were singing songs to a bunch of grown men kicking a football around. How do you explain to someone who's never seen football before? It's just, it's just so weird. I can't describe the feeling. And that's Flav. He and T are two of the original members of The Fighting Cock, a podcast and website about all things Tottenham. And full disclosure, The Fighting Cock has a Patreon, I subscribe, and I've written for their website. Also, I'm a fan. Like, they're the coolest kids in middle school, and the fact that they're willing to talk to me gives me all kinds of feelings. But that's besides the point. I can't describe the fact that you're amongst 6,000 other, other people who feel are feeling the exact same thing that you are. It's indescribable. You lose your mind. You, your body does things that you, you didn't think it could or you, would never, you never intended for it to happen. And you're going crazy. And if you look at it from afar, there's, things, there's something called a limbsy celebration, which is essentially mean when an important goal scored, all you can see is limbs flailing around. I mean, there are less and less ex- opportunities to have feelings like that in this world for any of us, right? Yeah. There's drugs, religion, war, and love, it, basically, and then and then football. No, there isn't. There isn't. There's that feeling. I was higher than any drug I've ever taken in that moment. It was, uh, yeah, it was incredible. And it was legal and sort of safe. So yeah, soccer fans are different than your average sports fans. And back in Paris, amongst the many reasons that this game was notable, is that both of these teams have famously vocal ultra groups that weren't able to be there. We'll talk about PSG's ultras in a second, but in all of world football, there is no group of ultras quite as famous, quite as intimidating as the yellow wall of Borussia Dortmund. This is the sound of a Borussia Dortmund home game. Listen to that. That roar, that drone, the drums. There are flares going off, giant flags waving. It's absolutely insane looking. Especially if you're Julia, our producer, and Joshi, our executive producer. I mean, I think I know you both to be people that do not seek out being in a group. Is that true? A hundred percent for me. Even at things that I like to go to, I would actively avoid crowds. Julia, you're so unwilling to be a part of a group that you're not going to even answer this question. <laughs> no, I, same. I, I really don't understand wanting to seek to seek that out. Okay, so that brings us to the first question of this podcast. Why do ultras even exist? Why do they sing? And honestly, the first answer is really simple. It works. Soccer, more than any other sport in the world, has one of the biggest home field advantages. Home teams are awarded more penalties, more fouls, more free kicks, which means home teams score more frequently and they win more frequently. Studies suggest that this advantage is a direct result of referees being unconsciously intimidated by the sound of the crowd. Football crowds are loud. There have been studies of decibel levels in European football stadiums. Crowds can get to the decibel level of a pneumatic drill, which might not seem that loud, except 
Think about the last time you saw someone use a pneumatic drill. They were almost certainly wearing industrial-grade headphones to, you know, avoid permanently damaging their eardrums. That's how loud a football crowd can get. Eardrum damagingly loud. I find it hard to concentrate when my kids are quietly playing imaginary castle in the other room. I can't even imagine trying to shout instructions to an elite athlete while 60,000 people jackhammer away at my skull. It's intimidating, and it works. That's why when fans of a team misbehave or a club is perceived to have broken a serious rule, the team is punished by preventing fans from attending games. They're taking away a huge edge that a home team has. But in Paris on March 11th, the stands weren't empty as a punishment. They were empty as a precaution. Inside, the ball echoes around the stadium. The players' shouts sound like kids at a YMCA gym yelling at each other. There's a banner that the PSG Ultras placed inside the stands that reads, Our only virus is PSG. I'm honestly not sure what that means, but outside, the Ultras are making noise. 26 minutes into the game, Dortmund has the ball, and then suddenly, the PSG Ultras set off a series of fireworks. It totally took me by surprise. And on the field, it seems like it takes the players by surprise as well. A Dortmund player with the ball hesitates, and a PSG player immediately steals it. Edison Cavani drives towards the goal, he's fouled, and PSG is awarded a free kick. That free kick leads to a corner kick, which leads to a goal. And look, I don't know if those fireworks actually made a difference. In fact, there's probably a bit of outcome bias in what I'm saying. But I think it's fair to say that the fireworks certainly made an impression. Noise, intimidation, influencing the game, that's all one major part of why ultras exist. But it's only a part. The other part is what Ali was saying way back in the beginning of this episode when we were camping. Some, something awakens in me and it, it's very, very, very old. Something happens when people get together and sing. I think there's something about singing together. It's a more emotionally in touch way of engaging with your circumstances, but I think it also allows you to engage with your circumstances as a group. In other words, we sing to be together. Sport isn't just for playing, it's for watching, for communing, and it's always been like that. Sport's been around for millennia, right? As long as we've been people, we've played. And for about as long as people have played, other people have watched. In ancient Olympia, home of the Olympics, there was a stadium that was built so that the greatest athletes could demonstrate their abilities to please the gods. But also, there was an artificial hill that was constructed so that people, fans, could watch as well. We play sports and we watch sports. Sometimes the games are made up of the elite, like in ancient Greece, and other times, they are made up of the people. Take, for example, the origin of the sport that we call soccer. In Northern Europe, there was a type of game known simply as football. Rather than played on horseback, this game was played on foot. And it's probably the origin of all the different footballs we play, but this folk football was different. A town would be split in half, there would be one goal on one side of the town and one goal on the other, and the object of the game was to move a ball to your goal. How you did it was up to you, and how you were stopped was up to them. There were no rules. The only rule was that the first goal wins and everyone plays. Where you were born determined your team for life. If you were too young or too old or too frail to play, you watched 
and cheered and screamed and hoped that your loved ones didn't get hurt or worse. This game is still played, by the way. In small towns like Kirkwall, Scotland, the Uppies play the Doonies twice a year. And even though it's a violent and crazy game, there's something essential about it. We need this game. Back in the day, we needed it to please the gods. Then we needed it to define our tribes, what part of town we identify with. And religion, tribalism, fandom, it's all kind of one and the same. And it all comes down to one simple idea. Communing with a group of like-minded strangers feels really good. It feels powerful. Here's Flav again. So I grew up in Holloway in North London. Holloway is what Tottenham fans call bandit country. So that is essentially an area that's saturated with Gooners or Arsenal fans. So I was, I was kind of surrounded by Gooners from the, for as soon as I left the house, as soon as my dad le- let me leave the house as a, as a young, as a kid, I was surrounded by them. And on match day, they would be everywhere like a virus. They would come to the area and, um, and they would uh, sully it with their stench. But you were walking out of the house at that age. I mean, Arsenal was great, right? You were not, it was, yeah. you were, you were, you supported a terrible team yep. surrounded by, by people who were just celebrating and laughing at you. And yep. you, there must have been the pull. No, never. I mean, no, I mean, it's, you know, if you're right and you're, you're far, you're steadfast and you taught, been taught about right and wrong. There's no way that, that, that just because something looks better over there, that you're 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 going to come off that path, and if you do, you're you're a weak human being. You know, you think of the greatest stories and the greatest struggles in life. It's in the face of adversity. It's 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 um it's battling against the greater power. A lot of people talk about um, you know, you should. It's small time. It's a small small club mentality. If you if you hate your rivals as much as you love your own club, but because of my of what I experienced during my formative years. I do hate Arsenal as much as I love Tottenham. And an Arsenal defeat makes me feel as good as, as a Tottenham win. What's great about football is this partisanship. It's what makes it real. It's what, what's, what's important. Right. Tribalism really feels good. Especially when you're sinking. Standing amongst a thousand other people screaming together. It doesn't matter if you're screaming hate because you're together. I mean, look, how else do you explain the deep partisan divide in politics? We like tribes. Tribes feel safe. Tribes feel like power. But not to Julia. And it's important to hear why. Just, it still looks so crazy to me and so scary, honestly. What, what is scary? Well, it's a group of mostly men screaming, singing about something. It just looks like, it looks like a violent mob. And the only thing that is keeping it from being a violent mob is that it is structured into a stadium. But aside from that, yeah, it it looks like a violent mob. Yeah, that's really important to pay attention to. These groups of men, and they're almost always men, are designed to intimidate, right? That kind of toxic masculinity is frankly at the core of every single ill in our society to date. That has to be said and thought about and truly taken in. I believe, though, that if we do that, if we accept the group's limitations and the group's dangers, then you can also start to see something else emerge from the group. You're a part, again, a part of something greater than yourself. You're just one voice in, in, in thousands. 
And if it was just you, no one would hear you. But it, it isn't just you. You're, you're a part of a, something much greater than yourself. Like, why do people start singing at church? Why do you sing hymns at church? Yeah. It may, you, you're part of a, a collective celebration of something. People sing in church to join together for a different purpose. Worship, fellowship, community. Subjugating your individualism isn't just about mob violence and tribalism. It's about creating a new kind of space, a shared space, a co-created space that, yes, can cause harm. But what you're hearing right now is actually a testament to how this group think can actually bring people together. On March 11th in Paris, the ultras that gathered outside the stadium are called the CUP, the Collectif Ultras Paris. My French is terrible. PSG used to have two main ultra groups, a left-wing group that sat in one stand and a right-wing group that sat in the other. They tried to outsing each other, they tried to outsupport each other, they fought each other, they hurt each other. Such was their love for their team. Such was their intense sectarianism. No one can hurt you quite like your own family, right? In 2010, the ultras were banned from the Parc de Princes, the stadium of PSG. And for six years, Games were played like this one was being played, in semi-quiet without the ultras creating an atmosphere. Until 2016. While the rest of the world fell deeper into partisan divides, the right and the left in Paris came together to form one more perfect union of rabid nutjob fans. They let go of their own subjective beliefs and experiences. They subjugated their own individualism for the good of the collective. I love that. But of all the fans in Europe, the group that I identify with most are the ones from England. And there's one simple reason for that. The hardcore fans in England don't just sing nonstop. There's no capo, there's no ultras. When they sing, they do it spontaneously. So let's dive into what makes English fans great. And we're gonna start with Flav. I told you before about his relationship with Tottenham and the fact that I'm also a Spurs fan. But what I didn't tell you is that the reason I fell in love with the game of football in the first place was fans like Flav and T. Flav used to be obsessed with Dortmund's ultras. He thought they were the best expression of football fandom. But then, a few years ago, Tottenham played Dortmund at White Hart Lane, the Spurs stadium in North London. And they they whooped us. They were much, much better. And uh, they were just constant singing, bouncing, flags everywhere. There would have been people in that stand that couldn't see at all for all the flags and that. They scored a goal and there was no elevation. There was no moment of explosion. I mean, there's no ebb and flow. That's Thelonious again. That when Aubameyang scored at Wahart Lane, there was no difference. There was no limbs. They just carried on singing. There were no limbs. They just carried on singing. That steady drone, that is the opposite of English fandom. So here's what it's like to be in an English football stadium. You hear sounds of individuals screaming, chanting, yelling at their favorite players, taunting their rivals. And then, all of a sudden, all of that noise, all that individualism coalesces into a single voice. Suddenly, everyone is singing. Spontaneously. Ecstatically. Democratically. And I think that that spontaneity creates something more authentic, more real. When I was maybe 12, 13, I'd go to the games with my dad and his mates. My dad would either leave us outside the pub with some lemonade and some crisps for two hours. We'd sit and wait for him to finish drinking and then we'd go to the game. 
or occasionally we'd be allowed in as we got a bit older we'd be allowed in the pub you would just uh you'd just sit down and uh, and you'd listen to your dad talk to to his mates and more, desperate to be a part of that conversation like desperate to be seen as a fellow fan to seen in a way that they see each other to be not a son but a a, a fan uh, we're all like all spurs i don't know what it is about children and parents but that desire for belonging, a desire that is stronger than a desire for family even, that feels so vital. I can touch that feeling inside of myself right now. Years ago, I was hanging out with the members of this commune, these beautiful, weird socialists that were fighting for peace in the outskirts of Tel Aviv. The main guy was a dude named Lior. He looked like if Che Guevara had a bar mitzvah and then was given a gift certificate to Urban Outfitters. Just this like hipster revolutionary, right? But the whole time we were together, I wanted him to see me like I saw him. But I knew he wouldn't. I felt like an imposter. I always feel like an imposter. But the thing is that he did. And one day he took me aside and he invited me to join the commune to change the world with him. And I told him I was about to get married. And he told me that there was an intimacy greater even than the intimacy of love and relationship. I wrote it off as weird cultish behavior, but then I found Spurs fandom. Years after that commune moment, I was sitting in a bar in Brooklyn, watching a nothing game between Tottenham and Stoke. A dude from London sat down next to me, we chatted a bit about the game, went about our afternoons, and then Peter Crouch scored a goal and we both leapt up and wrapped each other in a massive hug. He was there with his bored girlfriend, I was there with my friends. After I sat back down, my buddy leaned over and said, this is the happiest you've ever been in your life. And he was right. It had nothing to do with the game. It was that this guy saw me as I saw him, as Flav wanted his father to see him as a fan. But more importantly, unlike hipster Che Guevara, this guy in the pub did it spontaneously, ecstatically. He didn't think or plan whether or not I had earned my place in the community. He simply included me before either of us had a chance to think about it. Spontaneity became the cure for my imposter syndrome. And of course, the fastest route to making that connection, to seeing each other as we want to be seen, is singing. In these pubs, you'd hear singing, like everybody singing, and people making up chants, and then that would, would transport to to the um, to the stadium. And the atmosphere, as I remember it, with rose-tinted glasses, was was incredible. I don't know, it's just organic, and I think the feeling of starting a chant and everyone chimes in, that's an amazing, that's an amazing feeling. Kind of like you, you're in there, you feel like something happens, and then instinctively you... You know that this song is going to get sung. Obviously, if a player scores, that their song will get sung. Or if there's a dull moment where not much is happening, then fans will start singing to each other. But genuinely very organic and with no real reason. On my very first trip to London to see Spurs, I experienced that organic singing. And honestly, I couldn't stop smiling like an idiot. But there's also something else. The very first time I sat in the cheap seats at White Hart Lane, the Spurs Stadium, yes, I experienced organic binding together of the community, but then something happened that was more akin to what Ali said at the beginning of the episode. Something awoke inside of me. I just remember this really bizarre moment. The the American keeper for Villa, um, what was his name? Brad Guzan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I had this bizarre experience of looking at him, and in my head, I said, 
you're just a shit Brad Friedel. <laughs> and then like about 10 seconds later, the entire stand erupted in, you're just a shit Brad Friedel. And yeah. that's that kind of unspeakable, yeah. coincidental probably, but kind of collective something. No, it's not. It's not coincidental if there's a shared understanding of a situation. You're, that, that's an example of you know removing you as an individual and you being a part of a fan base. It, I mean, it's a shame that it kind of that something so special resulted in just digging out another bald US goalkeeper. <laughs> but that's that's football. But yeah, no, you 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 experienced or you felt in that moment what many other people were. Yeah, you got you got it. You know what I mean, not every, not everybody does. To be fair, so you know, fair play. It was honestly like being in a hive mind or something. I, I really loved the way that felt. That connection, that experience of suddenly becoming part of something bigger than yourself. It was totally intoxicating. And that feeling was so powerful to Flav and T that they decided to push it as far as it could go. They formed a group of fans just like them with the only goal of experiencing that feeling. Well, it started out as a, like a flash mob, really. Um, at the time, I think it was about 2012, flash mobs were all the rage. Um, you know, some, you'd have a, maybe 20, 30 people in a shopping mall, and at the same time, they do a massive synced dance. Um, they're not really in vogue now, but at the time, they were a big deal. So we thought, how about we just run up on Spurs, <laughs> so to speak, so... We we chose a youth game to do it, and we said we're going to go. We're going to have drums and klaxons and horns and you know loads of colours and flags and all sorts, and just create an ultra's atmosphere at, at a youth game. They chose a game, a meaningless game, a youth game between Tottenham's academy players and Charlton Athletic, and they told people to show up and sing, not for the superstars or for the goals, but for the shirt that they wore, the badge of Tottenham Hotspur. What you're hearing right now is a bunch of men singing in an empty stadium for players that normally play in front of their friends and their families. But they're singing because they're together. This first game was a success, and so Flav and T started doing more and more. They went to youth games, cup games, Europa League games. Any game that they could get a block of tickets together, they'd bring their group. Oh. And another thing, they needed a name. Initially, it was called the Tottenham Ultras. I cringe at that now. Um, and we settled upon a better name in the end for 1882. 1882, the year that Tottenham Hotspur was founded by a group of school kids under a lamppost in North London. When you look around European football, it's easy to only see the multi-billion dollar industry that's grown up around the game. But at its heart, football is much more like 1882 than it's not. Yeah, it's a world of fancy cars and fancier haircuts, but what Flav and T and the rest of the 1882 movement proved is that it's also a world of radical inclusion, grassroots community, connection, and all of that, all of that is expressed through song. Are you the guy that starts a song? No, no. <laughs> um, 1882 is a free-for-all, though. Everyone, everyone starts a song, so 1882 I'll do it, but in a normal game... Maybe not, depends on how many beers I've had, but generally I'm not the one to start a song. I think of the fighting cop lads, that would be Flav who does that. 
nah, I'm too old, too self-conscious. Um, but yeah, we, when we started the 1882 movement, no one felt stupid. No one felt, you know, inhibited to start a song. And if they started a song, everyone would join in with them. And if they fucked it up, everyone would laugh at them. But it would be like, a, like ah, don't worry, don't worry, look, have another one, let's have another one. But yeah, there's no greater feeling than starting a song and then it picks up and goes around the whole stadium. So do, do you have a favorite song? Do you have a favorite song from back then or, or, or today now, that, a song that you hear that consistently gives you the goosebumps? And um, I mean, probably the, the, the oldest ones, really. There's Owen the Spurs. And I guess I win the Spurs is an obvious one because I think when it beat Arsenal again 5-1 in 2008, that song went on for ages and then the fifth goal goes in. I mean, that's the song that, that's probably the song that stands out the most. For me, I have a particular type of song that I love. Songs that just simply announce who we are. Musicologists say that one of the main reasons we sing is to identify ourselves, our people. And both these songs exemplify that feeling. This is us. We are here. But my favorite song, it's this. This is an even more granular Who We Are song. They're singing, we're the Park Lane, we're the Park Lane, we're the Park Lane Tottenham. And then the other group sings, we're the shelf side, we're the shelf side, we're the shelf side Tottenham. All they're doing is singing about what part of the stadium they sit in. But on one occasion, it became the most transcendent thing I've ever witnessed. I think it was Spurs versus... Ah, uh, I can't remember. Lamella scored. And we were singing this non-stop for six, seven minutes. It might have even been longer. And it was towards the end of the, the old stadium. And I think it was just a, a, an acknowledgement that what we were witnessing was going to stop, was going to end, and the new stadium was going to be built and it, it wouldn't be the same. It was just a, a non-stop serenading of each other and for the large part when singing that, you can't look at the pitch, you're looking at other people. If you're sat in the shell stand, you're looking at the part lane and every time they sing, everybody stands up with their arms in the air. So you're, they're sitting, they're sedentary, and then suddenly there's these bursts of movement with the arms in the air. And then when they sit down, you react in the same way. And it's a great thing to see and a great thing to be a part of. Yeah. yeah. It's this moment in which the game recedes from importance and all that's left is, is the fans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the, what's going on on the pitch for that moment isn't as important as the relationship you have with each other. I use the word a lot, and I don't know how else to say it. It's just annihilating, right? Like, just this complete sense of, I don't exist anymore except for in this moment, except for right here yeah. in, in the face of this, the, the, the pitch. No, you're right. You, you're, you're not yourself anymore. You're 
you become irrelevant. You're part of a thing that's greater than yourself. I love that moment. But when I told Julia about it, she had a different take. This wasn't annihilation. It was something else. A while ago, you, you said something to me about missing the spaces in which sports are watched and in which sports are discussed. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So I, I miss kind of, I miss bars and I miss kind of just going over to a friend's living room or basement and watching a sports game because it's, you kind of instantly enter this environment in which you have permission to not have to be all the things that you're supposed to be and you don't have to talk about yourself, you don't have to talk about work, you don't have to talk about like stupid things that are going on in your life. You get to just be there and you just get to enjoy something that is going on in real time at that moment with someone else that you care about. So I experienced that as this like subjugation of the individual, like this kind of annihilation, this this sense that I don't I don't have to be me. I can be something else but but that's not that's not what how you describe it yeah i think it's um i think it's when you give yourself permission to not be the things that you are supposed to be i think that's when what you actually are can arise there's something beautiful and troubling about what julia just said because if it's not annihilation if it's actually just a truer more authentic version of ourselves emerging then there's no excuse when I jump up and scream at the top of my lungs about hating my rivals. There's a song, literally sung almost every single game, where the Tottenham fans sing, When I was just a little boy, my mother gave me a little toy. An Arsenal fan on a string, she told me to kick its fucking head in. And there are 36,000 people in a stadium and most of them have jobs. They're solicitors, doctors. Like we're, a, we're quite an affluent fan base. I consider myself to be a professional and work in the real world. And I'll stand on a chair and sing that out loud. Like It's what football does to you. It, it enables you to be removed from society for 90 minutes where you won't be judged and you won't be picked apart for feeling something about your football club and feeling something about the team that you're playing against. Right. So that means that if what Julia says is true, that that rage, that hatred, it's within me. The game is just an excuse for it to emerge. But the beautiful part is that if Julia is right, then the other thing that's within me and within all fans is something much more creative, something much more progressive, something connective. We lost to Fulham in the FA Cup 4-0. I think it was 4-0 at half-time. I think we might have been down to 9. And in the second half, the fans sang for the entire half. Non-stop. We were just jumping up and down, singing our the Spurs and all those songs for, for the entire half. And to experience that together made it a lot better than it would have been if I went by myself. So so when, you, when you're with your friends, it's about the day out. It's about you know having a good time more than the result. That feeling of connection, of wanting to be together, of comforting each other even in the face of losing, that is also within us. And that is what I love about the spontaneity of English fandom and Spurs. When someone reaches across the divide and bridges that gap 
and forms a temporary community with you, with me. When they do that through song or joy or even through pain, you know it's coming from someplace deep within them, an authentic place. And honestly, more and more in this world, that's getting harder and harder to encounter. It's very rare that you get to meet people and make connections with people when they're at their absolute happiest or absolute saddest, and you absolutely agree with them. That's Mari Lewis. She's a Liverpool supporter. I can't imagine any other situation where you're meeting a stranger through a shared feeling, highs or lows. I'm fans of other sports and other teams and things like that, but Liverpool is the one place that I have had an amazing night out after we've lost. So let's talk about Liverpool, because the other game on March 11th was the Liverpool versus Atletico Madrid game in front of fans, and it featured the greatest song in the history of world football. Like, as, as much as I hate to admit it, uh, Liverpool fans are brilliant. They, they are incredible. And, uh, yeah, you'll never walk alone is, oh man, it's incredible. I mean, it's, like, I hate it. That's how incredible it is. I, I hate it. I hate the fact that it's so good. I hate the fact that they're singing it. Like, you'll never walk alone is iconic to English football. haunting song. It's one of those things that if you're a neutral, I would assume that that's the thing that you would walk away from. Like if for whatever reason you're in Anfield or you're somewhere um, and you do not care about the sport whatsoever, you will probably walk away having something to say about, wow, that song at the beginning. And then there was 90 minutes of things I didn't really care about. But that song at the beginning, though, um, it shows you what community around sport would be. How this song ended up becoming one of the greatest anthems in world football is not just the story of Liverpool FC. It's the final piece of this puzzle about why soccer fandom is so vitally important to me. So first of all, the facts. You'll Never Walk Alone was written in 1945 for the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Carousel. Almost two decades after the song premiered in Carousel, it ended up in the center of a seismic shift in the music world. It was 1963, and two bands from Liverpool were about to change the world. First, the Beatles released their first single, Please Please Me, and then Jerry and the Pacemakers release a cover of You'll Never Walk Alone. The thing about Scousers is they really like a banger. That word she just used, Scouser, it means someone from Liverpool. They, they're here for a good tune. Regardless of the circumstance, just if it's good, it's, it's going to be met with joy. The story goes that Jerry of the Pacemakers gave a copy of his cover of You'll Never Walk Alone to Liverpool's manager and club legend, Bill Shankly. And Bill fell in love with this version. The song was played along with many other songs before home matches. And as Mari said, fans loved singing along loudly. That's the sound of the 1965 FA Cup Final. It's the earliest known recording of the song being sung by Liverpool fans. 
No backing track, just the fans singing as their heroes play the game. Liverpool fans are actually credited as being the first fans to celebrate their players through singing. And this song was at the center of it. In fact, there's film of the Liverpool fans singing along to the Beatles. The Beatles! The biggest rock group in the history of rock groups. And yet, the song that became emblematic of this team wasn't the song of Liverpool's greatest exports. It was this. So, why? It has a really nice melody. I think that that's really important. That's Max again. Melody can't be taken for granted. It's got to be catchy and like a standalone melody because this is just voices and not good voices at that. (laughs) And so you have to have this really nice melody that like really makes people feel things and that they want to sing. So yeah, it's got a good melody, but that's not enough. I mean, I don't want to belabor the point, but the Beatles had really good melodies as well. There's something else more vital to You'll Never Walk Alone. And it has everything to do with what Mari said earlier about having a good time out in Liverpool even when they lost. And it even has to do with why the term Scouse has such meaning for them. You know, Liverpool for a long time was a, a, a section of the UK that wasn't wanted by the rest of it. That's Flavigan. In the late 60s and 70s, England and the world was hit terribly hard by economic downturns, and Liverpool bore the brunt of it. The Conservatives and Margaret Thatcher floated a policy of managed decline, and in other words, let Liverpool burn. People will leave, there's no point in saving the city. Thatcher was, was, was doing things that made the people of Liverpool and elsewhere feel unwelcome. And so they became Scousers as opposed to Englishmen. And I think a lot of people get frustrated now about, oh, don't refer refer to yourself as a Scouse, you're English. But this comes from a place of of, um, of being targeted and, and being attacked by a political system. And so when they sing, they are defiant against the rest of the country, which is a weird, weird situation for them to be in. And, and, and when they sing their songs and they're defensive about Liverpool, it comes from that, that, that political angst that they feel. Listen to them sing. The lyrics are terribly moving. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high. Don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of a storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain. Though your dreams be tossed and blown, walk on, walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. Walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone. This is a song you can sing when you win, but this is a song you can sing when you lose. That thing of transcending the game, forming community through song, being together, being our most authentic versions of ourselves, it's all in the lyrics. This is not just the best football song. It's every football song. When you're a fan, a true fan, Whatever that may mean, you'll never walk alone. 
My first foray into field research was going to Dublin. That's Max again. There was this one game. It was pretty early on. I'd probably been there for like three weeks. And one of the ultras, the older ultras had died of cancer. The ultras had made these banners and they smuggled in a lot of pyrotechnics to essentially celebrate this guy who had died. And the atmosphere was just so incredible. Like, I just remember sitting back in my apartment after it was all over being like, I don't know why that was so important, but this was like really important that this happened, what you, ex- like what you experienced. Those are the really formative moments going through these moments of collective trauma, I would even argue. Curious if you watched the fanless game experience. Oh, you're not going to get the answer you want here, I think. I don't watch football on television. <laughs> football is like the eye of the hurricane, and in the eye, there's nothing there. And it's not what actually matters. A lot of ultras don't care that much about football, they don't like football that much. Football winds up being the organizing principle for a culture and a social life. The game itself is largely secondary. The other day I spoke to Alan Fisher. He was featured heavily back in season one, talking about his history as a Spurs supporter and season ticket holder. When we spoke, he was interviewing me as part of some research he was doing on fandom. So I wasn't recording our conversation. But as we talked, the subject of not being able to be in the stands for these games came up, and he said something to me that was so sad and surprising. He said that watching the games that are being played behind closed doors, he felt disconnected from the team, as though without fans in the stands, he couldn't find his way into the world of the game. He had no proxy for himself there. But then he said, What I do is I sit in a football ground, and I know you can't influence what the team does, but you're part of it. And it's less about influencing and more about being part of it. There's a distinct feeling that it's all going on without me. My passion is not relevant to what's happening in the moment. I sat there listening quietly with goosebumps rising all up and down my arms. And then he said the single truest and saddest summary of what life is like in this moment of waiting and sheltering and being disconnected. He said, I'm not significant in any way, but I am to me. I have to be important to myself. And yet, that's all been denied to me. That's how horrible he felt in this moment of disconnection, in this moment without his people. On March 11th, Liverpool loses the game. But a few months later, they win the Premier League. And actually, the way they win is interesting. Obviously, there are no crowds in the stands, but there are also no players on the pitch. They win the league because Manchester City loses a game to Chelsea. It's about as nothing of a way to win a competition, and kind of the most obvious example of what Alan was describing. But when I spoke to Mari, that's not how she took it. I really didn't at first want us to win the league without the players being on the pitch, because I felt that would be sort of doubly cruel, and that you don't have fans there, and now you're not even going to win it whilst playing. That just seems inappropriate sort of thing. But after the match, and I forget who said it, but someone that I heard in the days after 
was talking about how cool it was to actually, in these circumstances, this was the only way we could have won it where everyone was watching the exact same way. The Liverpool fans around the world were united by their disconnect. But so were the players. Everyone in this weird community experienced their victory in exactly the same way, watching it on a screen. And look, you don't have to love tribalism or even ever want to be part of a group to know that there are so many ways we are missing each other in this moment. So many ways we are missing connection. Our highs are muted and our lows are much lower without connection, without each other. But if we are willing to look at it the way Mari does, we see that we're in fact connected through the cruelty and oddity of this moment. And that's where hope lies. We're back in Vermont now, camping with Allie and Eric. And I want you to know something. The kids, they played for hours and hours. They snuggled, they laughed, they told stories, they made up songs, they roasted marshmallows and went swimming and skipped and danced and sang. They didn't need any of us to protect them. They didn't even need reminders of how to be people again, how to be for each other. They didn't need songs. They didn't need crowds. They didn't need sports. Their authentic selves were just there, ready to reconnect. For the rest of us that do need all those other things, we're going to find them. As long as we remember that the game isn't important, it's the people around it that make the difference. First Time, Long Time is written and edited by me, Aaron Wolf. Julia Chen is our producer. And this whole episode was her idea. Even if she hates groups and thinks I'm a weak person for needing Flav and T's acceptance, at her core, I'm pretty sure she gets it. Joshi Balgos and Nasia Kamrat are our executive producers. Raina Habaker is our researcher. And Annika Carlson is our intern. Some of the research in this story came from an incredible book called The Ball by John Fox. Go pick this book up. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. On our next episode, we're going to look at what America's pastime can tell us about America's greatest flaw. See you next time.